And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. On this podcast, I'm going to focus on uh, three topics. I'm sure the one that will be of most interest uh, to our listeners will be my comments about how to invest during the Trump presidency. But I also want to talk about uh, uh, how many people likely missed out on the great returns of small cap value in 2016. And uh, that comes from a a short piece that I read about how many people are in the market. And so I think you'll find it interesting to see um, how few investors really end up maximizing their returns for the risk they're willing to take. And the third subject I want to cover is uh, a response to a question about what a young investor uh, should do. How should he start investing? What should he do with his wife's 401k? What should he be suggesting to her? And uh, so I want to I want to respond to him. I'm not going to give him personal advice because. I'm not allowed to, but uh, I, I think his, his question is a very common one, and I want to give some practical advice on what we can do to try to have all the parts of our portfolio work together. But let me start with this, uh, this interesting question about what to do investing-wise during the Trump presidency. Certainly in my life, there hasn't been uh, any election uh, or uh, presidency that has been kind of more confusing or or more emotional uh, than Trump's. And um, uh, so what should we do? How do we respond, whether we agree with him or whether we disagree with him? How do you respond to that? Well, my belief is... There is always good news, and there's always bad news in the market. In fact, every stock, at least theoretically, represents a price that is some balance between those that have problems with the company in terms of their belief of the future value and growth, and people who don't have problems, who like that company. And I sense the same thing is true in relationship to uh, whether you want to call it the desires of the Republicans or the desires of the Democrats. You can see how easy it would be for those two groups to come up with a list of good news and bad news. Because obviously, for some, Trump's election is good news. And for others, it's bad And just as I remember so vividly, when Clinton, Bill Clinton, got elected, a phone call I got from John out of Louisville, who just hated Clinton. And I'll tell you, in terms of making a list of bad news and good news, he couldn't come up with anything good about Bill Clinton. And, uh, and, and the conversation started, just get me out, Paul. I don't want to be in the market any time when Bill Clinton is the president. 
Well, I spent, I think, 45 minutes, maybe an hour, convincing him that from everything I know about the past, uh, the president, Republican or Democrat, isn't likely to have the impact on your investments. I'm not talking about what the impact might be on on uh, health care or the might might be on uh, pro-life, uh, whatever uh, changes might come of all of that. That's politics. That's our personal beliefs. And I differentiate all of those from how we should be investing. So I talked him out of it. And I can tell you, and John has passed away since, but I can guarantee you that his kids inherited more money because Jim, not Jim, John was willing to take the Clinton risk. And I have a a friend who is at the, uh, has the same kind of set of beliefs about Obama. And and I mean, he could go on and on when Obama got elected as to how that was truly probably going to literally destroy America. He thought Obama would destroy our economy, lead us into a depression. I mean, we were already on that track when he when Obama became president. And of course, again, I tried <laughs> tried with my friend to say, look. I know how you feel, uh, but I also know that historically uh, how we feel doesn't seem to have much to do with what the market does. And interestingly, Vanguard just recently came out with a report uh, going back to a study going back to 1853, and it turns out Republican or Democrat didn't make any any meaningful difference. Now, it doesn't mean for a second that uh, uh, there weren't periods that Republicans had great returns and periods they had bad, and Democrats great and Democrats bad, but the compound rate of return for a, a very long period of time, back to 1853, is almost exactly the same. And interestingly, they also uh, looked at the interest rates and bond prices and what happened there in terms of the two parties. And it turned out that really it had little, uh, some, but little to do with uh, the party in power so much as it did to, uh, to do with Fed policy, Federal Reserve policy. Now for me, I don't trust any of uh, any of them. I could say, um, in terms of politicians, um, I don't have a, a sense that uh, um, they're going to be straight with me and tell me like it is, and and so I just have left the political dialogue completely out of my decision making with my. Uh, investing. And and so uh, that's a very different approach because it's very similar to people who want to analyze the economy and make a decision as to whether to be in or out of the market. 
I just don't believe in it. And one of the reasons I don't believe in it is because I'm going to overlay whatever I look at with some sort of a uh, of a view that comes from my internal belief system. And I've talked about this before, but my belief is that something catastrophic is just around the corner. I've, I've believed that way all of my adult life. When there was a good list and a bad list, I found it very easy to look at the bad list and say, oh my God, this could be terrible. And had I not been so emotional and afraid of that list of catastrophic events that were going to likely happen, I would have made a lot more money on my investments because I would not have been so conservative. So I've learned a lot about investing over the years. I've even come to understand my own challenges about acceptance of risk. And I think it takes a lot of investors most of a lifetime to get all that down and understand it. And you can make a lot of bad decisions in the meantime. I spent my early years, I thought I was investing. But I didn't invest, I speculated. I speculated in a lot of individual companies uh, that had a great sales pitch, a high probability of failure, and as I look back now, probably a very low probability of long-term success. But I don't forget how, how, how optimistic I was that these individual companies were going to be great investments. But they were never investments. They were pure and simple speculations. So how do I think you should invest in this market, whether you're a first-time investor or a, an old hand at it? Well, my feeling is you should invest unemotionally. You should invest carefully. You should invest with lots of facts about past results and a good understanding of your own needs and limits around risk-taking. Remember that catastrophic event that I'm waiting for or that I expect? I'm ready for it. And I think you can be too. See, I don't see one piece of evidence that suggests that bear markets are a thing of the past. In fact, there have been so many of them, and they have been so hurtful, at least on a short-term basis, that I think we should understand what they look like, what they feel like, and what we can do to, in essence, either protect against them or take advantage of them, depending on the kind of investor you are. And if you haven't read my article, 22 Things You Should Know About Bear Markets, I hope you'll take a look at that, because... I, I think it's something we should internalize, be ready for, have the stage set to take that bear market on, and then to be there, to spring forward when the, the smoke clears and there's money to be made again. 
So how do you deal with that bear market correctly? Well, if you're a, a, a young person, I think uh, you, you take the position, yeah, come on, big guy, come on at me, see what you can do, see what I got, what you've got. And that means that as the bear market attacks, you just stay the course and you continue to unemotionally dollar cost average into that declining market. That is the right thing to do for a young investor. And while lots of people may think that Trump is this big risk, let me just tell you, there are hundreds of reasons that bear markets happen. And so, you, you well, in fact, you may be somebody who's enthusiastic with the changes that Trump wants to make and not afraid of a bear market. Well, please understand your optimism for whoever you are rooting for in, as the president. Your optimism for the president has almost nothing to do with the market. We've got to wring that emotion out of the decision-making process. But, but, have the right defensive strategy in place. Remember, for the first time, the early investor, keep dollar cost averaging. For somebody close to or in retirement like myself, now that's a different matter. There we want to be able to addressing our limits of loss and rebalancing as the decline continues. And that may be, as a do-it-yourselfer, one of the hardest things you'll ever have to face. And that is taking money out of fixed income that makes you feel so safe and actually putting more money into equities from the fixed income. That's the process of rebalancing in a bear market. And as many of you know, I'm the biggest chicken in the world when it comes to losing money, but I also know that I've got to be smart and take a little bit of risk, a, a reasonable amount of risk to participate on the way up. I don't need 10% a year for the rest of my life to be financially secure. But I would like 6 to 8. I think that would be, would be good, and I think it's doable. But because I'm this catastrophic thing-coming guy, I not only have half of my portfolio in a balanced 50-50 of stocks and bonds. Remember, the bonds are in there to defend against the, the impact of having everything in equities on the way down. But the other half of my portfolio is, in a portfolio, is, is being managed using market timing. Some in stocks, some in bonds, in all cases, working with a defensive strategy to protect me against the catastrophic. So at the end of the day, it is, it is possible in a really, really bad bear market that I'll be sitting with 25% of my money in equities and the rest either in bonds or money market funds. So I, am I suggesting that we ignore what's going on in our economy, ignore what's going on in the political structure? Um, I, I can't. 
I'm as emotional as probably most of you, or many of you anyhow, in terms of what I know that I would like to see our country be. But as I said earlier, the moment I start making investment decisions based on those emotions, I know I'm in trouble. I have talked for years the idea that decisions made regarding sex, money, food, let me add religion and politics, they are, what, 99% emotional and 1% intellectual? Of course, human beings being what we are, we believe it's 99% intellectual and 1% emotional. Well, I think we probably know better, but how do you keep all of those emotions out of that decision-making process? I'd like to, to, to spend a minute looking at some numbers. I actually subscribe uh, to a publication that's yeah, rather expensive for, for what I get in terms of numbers of pages I read each week. In fact, everything they send me fits on one piece of paper. And it's a publication called By the Numbers. And the publisher each week ferrets out a handful of maybe 12, 14 things, that, uh, topics that are numbers-based that uh, he thinks that we might be interested. And this week, I looked at the list of, of, of topics, and one of them I thought was very interesting. And the headline says, Half Missed Out. And then it goes on to say, the S&P 500 gained 12%, and then in parens, total return, which means includes capital gains, dividends, etc. But total return in 12% in 2016, higher than the index's trailing 50-year average performance of 10.2% per year. Now, that's the compound rate of return performance. He says an estimated 52% of American adults were invested in the U.S. stock market last year, either in personal accounts or through their retirement portfolios. Half. Now, I, I got to thinking about that because... There are, as we know, uh, obviously, half the people didn't get a chance to make the 12%, but they also didn't get a chance to make a lot more than 10% last year in the U.S. market. And so I decided I'd take a look to see what kind of money is in small cap, and I, and I even went beyond small cap to say small cap value, since that is my favorite asset class for the long term, even though I'm not advocating you put all your money in it. I just want you to know that I think that's where the big premium is going to be. But I was kind of curious about how much money is in small cap value versus the S&P 500. Now, I don't have uh, access to 
that number in total. But what I do have is knowledge of what we have at Vanguard, because I can, not what we, but investors have at Vanguard, because I can look at that at Morningstar. And in the S&P 500, both the investor shares and admiral shares, investor shares have higher expenses. And the reason admiral has lower expenses is because the minimum investment is $10,000. But combined, both the smaller accounts and the larger accounts have $282.6 billion invested. Small cap value as of the end of the year, $24.8 billion. In other words, there's about 12 times more money in the S&P 500. Now that does suggest to me that probably of those 52% that are in the market, it's certainly possible that half of those people don't have any money in small cap value. And I can conclude that because many 401k plans don't have small cap value. In fact, many of them have a small cap blend, but not small cap value, even though small cap value has paid a higher premium. What, for, if you look back in the studies, almost 90 years. But that then took me further. I wanted to know more. Because I got to thinking, okay, half the people have money in the market, and probably many of those, uh, evidently, from what how much money there is at Vanguard in the S&P 500, and elsewhere, by the way, it's huge. And the S&P 500 is virtually has the same return and risk characteristics as the total market index. Very little difference. But then I got to thinking, how did those people who were sitting in the S&P 500 do? And now, I wanted to know over a long period of time. Now, this really floored me. It turned out the people in the S&P 500 for the 10 years ending December 31, 2016. And this is a lot of money in the market that they made for the oh, those 10 years 3.48%. That's what the shareholder return was while the fund made 6.82. I was amazed. I hadn't looked at that shareholder versus fund return. Remember, the shareholder return is uh, a function of when they decided to be in the market and when they got out. And did they get in close to market tops uh, often? Did they quit investing in, or get out close to market bottoms quite often? So not only did we get a huge amount of money in the S&P 500, 
But apparently, and talking about vanguards now, but apparently most of that money was not made by the kind of the average investor because the average investor did horribly. So only half of the people are in the U.S. equity market and those that are in it haven't even come close to getting what it made or should have made for those investors. And if we go out for 15 years, the return is 4.54 for the average investor, but 7.67 for the fund itself. So what about the people who got into small cap value? It's, again, about one-twelfth of what was put into the S&P 500. But we can see how, according to, to Morningstar, how the average investor did. Well, it turned out that it made about 1% more than the S&P 500 over the 10-year period, about 763 and the average investor made about 1% more, or 4.4. So again, small cap value is expected to make more, and in that 10 years, they did. But those investors failed too. I'm talking about the average investor. For this reason of bad timing, I think most of it's got to be from bad timing. So we've got to turn this around. Number one, we've got to have more than half of the people investing in the stock market. You know, a lot of those are young people who are trying to invest, diligently invest, but are unwilling to take risk. The The premium is just to too large over the long term, at least historically, for young people to take that. And even people in retirement, in almost all cases, if you look at their lifetime needs, they're going to have at least some exposure to equities. But even if they do take the step of participating in equities, are they going to make 40% less than they should have because they don't take an unemotional long-term view of investing, don't chase performance just when the, the market's close to or at a top. There are some important steps to be taken to turn this around. And just as I said in the previous topic, The more we can eliminate the emotion of the process, the more likely we are to have a good long-term return. Now, in the last topic for the day, and there are several questions that I'll need to answer within this one uh, response, but it's from a 38-year-old investor. And he says, I haven't invested in anything yet. I have a few bucks saved up, and my wife has about 34000 
in a 401k without a match. She's a police officer and will have pension. A pension. As for me, I uh, am a personal trainer, and the industry is becoming an elite one, but it's up and down in steadfastness. His first question, should I put $5,500 in a Roth as I'm learning more? Second question, what to do with the 401k? And should I purchase your fitness book? That book, by the way, is Financial Fitness Forever. Or just stick with your three free ebooks. Now, those free ebooks are First Time Investor Grow and Protect Your Money. And the second one is 101 Investment Decisions Guaranteed to Change Your Financial Future. And the third one is Get Smart or Get Screwed, How to Select the Best and Get the Most Out of Your Financial Advisor. So let me take that last one first. Uh, I think it's good to start with those the first two books. Doesn't sound like you're headed towards an investment advisor. Maybe you should. Maybe you should find one that would review your decision on what you're going to do after you've developed your plan. Or maybe you could ask them what should be in your plan and they might send you home to gather the figures. But I think after you read those free ebooks, I would go right to the uh, uh, the best advice link, best advice, and there's a drop-down box there. And if you will read those articles, I think it will give you most of what you need in terms of information. But now let me look at the other questions. First of all, should I put 5500 in in a Roth as I'm learning more? Now, if I could have just stopped with a period at the word of Roth and say, should I put 5500 in a Roth? The first thing I'm interested to find out is when you first told me you had a few bucks, I was thinking maybe 500 or 1000 but you have enough to, to do... To, to do the maximum at your age. That's tremendous. And a Roth, which you likely qualify for, that's a great way to go. Now, this question about as I'm learning more. Well, I mean, I hope you keep learning the rest of your life. But I would like you to have a good idea of exactly what you're trying to achieve before you put away that 5500 I'd like you, if I could, to get you committed at least for a few years to an all-equity portfolio. And I've got several portfolios available uh, on the website there under recommendations. And you would likely want to use ETFs. And by the way, 
Within the next month, I certainly hope, I'm going to have a handful of additional portfolios for young investors. But it's important that you do get sufficient information to make that first investment so that you know what you're doing. And it's not all that complex. And again, if you've if you've read the first-time investor grow and protect your money, and you've read the 101 investment decisions, I think you'll be well on the road to, to knowing. But then you ask about your wife's 401k, what should we do with that? Well, that's an interesting challenge because according to your comment, there is no match on that. And I don't know how much money your wife is putting into the 401k, but if there's no match and the mutual funds in the portfolio or, the, or that are available for the investment, if they're not top-notch, she may, may be better off doing a Roth IRA uh, outside of her 401k because uh, now, by the way, she could probably also make it a deductible IRA, but the reality is it's probably a smart thing to do the Roth IRA and keep that money, theoretically anyway, tax-free for the rest of your lives. Now, you won't get a refund on your taxes because she did either a, a Roth IRA or maybe they have a Roth 401k available through the police department. But somebody needs to make a judgment about the quality the, the, of, of, of the funds and the asset classes that are available within her 401k. So I, I hope that helps more than the gentleman who wrote the letter because I think a lot of young people are kind of kind of stumbling you know what do I do to get started now my hope is early in the year that I will have a whole series of short videos that will give you better more confidence to move forward and get going and I think it's 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 thrilling to think that you're going to be able to start that Roth. you got plenty of time at age 38. I'm not telling you younger people to wait till you're 38 because the best thing you can do is do it right now. The younger, the better. But let's make sure that you're getting at the best equity asset classes and that between the two of you, you could access all those the asset classes that are uh, are important. Because, by the way, you may see that she has a wonderful S&P 500 index fund through her 401k, so the husband might not want to put that into his investment. He may want to use more value, both large cap and small, maybe a REIT, maybe even into the international markets. So between the two of you, you get out all of these great asset classes. And the bottom line is it's going to take a little work to do this right. But I don't want you to forget 
about the difference of a half a percent in your life. A half a percent difference. And I'll use the numbers I know. From age 25 to 64. And then to retire and live to 95. At $5,000 a year. From 25 to 64. And then living till 95. Getting in one case 8% and the other 8.5% is about a $2 million difference. Now, I don't know how healthy you are and how long you're likely to live. But if you got a lot of time on your side, you ought to be taking the time to know exactly why you're investing in the asset classes you do exactly what the expenses are so that you don't get carried away and get excited about recent performance in a mutual fund that has high expenses. And you need to know how you're going to transfer over time as you get older from equity to fixed income slowly. Those are all things of part of the process of being a good investor. So, Julio, I hope that helps you, and I hope it helps others who are getting started. And I hope these three topics, how to invest during the Trump presidency, the topic of how much people missed out in terms of potential returns by either not being in the market at all or not being in the market at the right times and not being in the asset classes that produce higher rates of return historically. I hope all of these topics are helpful to you in helping to make you a better investor. Thank you for listening. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.